2: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School. We are the region's leading graduate policy school and you can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted to be joined in the studio today by my regular co-host, Quentin Grafton. Hello, Quentin, how are you? Hi,
0: Martin, great to be here.
2: Ah, It's great to have you here. Quentin is a professor here at Crawford School. He's editor-in-chief for Policy Forum, so my boss... He's also the chairholder of the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance. Now, at the start of each week's podcast, we have a look back over the last week in the world of public policy and just have a chat about some of the things that have caught our eye. So, Quentin, what has caught your eye in the wide world of public policy?
0: Well, since we're in Canberra and, of course, Australia, and we have an election on the eighteenth of May, just uh, just a few uh, days away. Uh, or tomorrow. The biggest issue for me is all those policies. So we've got the coalition, we've got Labour, we've got the Greens, and we have other parties out there and independents. How do we put all those policies together in terms of who we're going to vote for and how we're going to put our preferences in? And so that's, I think, the most pressing policy issue going forward into the election is what we do and how do we translate
2: policy into
0: actual practice in the sense of who we vote for.
2: Now we're recording this on uh, Monday so by the time Saturday rolls around who knows maybe there'll be a grand suite of policy put forward by all of the parties but what's your take on the quality of the policies that have actually been put forward as part of the election campaign and do you think that the electorate has a clear handle on what those policies are?
0: I suspect that most people don't have a clear handle on those policies. I think there's some policies that have been given a lot of attention in terms of the franking credits and the tax refund associated with that from the labor side. But I think a lot of the policies have sort of passed people by. They may have registered if they're a particular electorate that, oh, I'm going to get a new road. But I think in terms of the details, I think a lot of that's passed people by. So I think they're focusing on key messages. And of course, the coalition side is about a strong economy and the ability of the coalition to deliver surpluses going forward. And I think the labor focus has been, of course, on I fair Go, which is about focusing on jobs and lower paid, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, its message from last Friday was that it could also generate, in fact, according to its projections, its claim would that it would deliver even bigger surpluses. So I think those are the sorts of messages people are getting in terms of What that means in the voting uh, booth on Saturday, of course, that's anyone's guess.
2: Now, I was listening to our other podcast, Democracy Sausage, with Mark Kenny earlier in the week. And on there, they were talking about this danger of voter fatigue. You know, there's been this kind of rapid turnover of prime ministers and political leaders. Plus, there's been recent elections in New South Wales and Victoria. There's all sorts of uh, challenges on the international political scene. How are you feeling about the end of the election campaign, Quentin? Are you, are you, are, are you fatigued? Are you pleased to get it over and done with?
0: Look, I'm looking forward to making my vote count on May 18th. So that's what I'm looking forward to. I think uh, most Australians by now have made up their minds. And there'll be a few who won't until actually they walk into the voting booth. But I think by this stage, most Australians, I think, have made up their minds. And so, yeah, I think let's, let's get it over. Let's work out who's going to be a new government. And let's get on with it. Uh, That's what. Let's get on with actually governing this country uh, for for all of Australians and moving moving us forward. So I think that was how I would. That would be my my view, and I suspect that's the view of of most voters. Of course, here in Australia, it's compulsory voting. So even though we might be a little disenchanted and may not trust the politicians very much, and maybe a little disheartened by the the election campaign, we still got to roll over and. Make our vote; uh, otherwise, we're going to get uh, a fine. So, uh, so I think in Australia's case, uh, we're still going to get the the, the the turnout. Although there's always the potential, and it seems to be increasing with each election, of uh, these spoiled ballots, where people just feel mm, uh, I've got to vote, okay, but I'm I'm going to vote in a way that just it registers my uh, dissatisfaction. So, so hopefully, people won't spoil their ballots; they will make their vote count because that's what we should do in a democracy.
2: And are you looking forward to your democracy sausage on, uh, on Saturday?
0: I most certainly am. As long as it's gluten-free, man.
2: <laughs> the sausage has to be gluten-free or has to be on gluten-free bread or everything has to be gluten-free.
0: Both. Yeah. And onions? No, I never go for onions with sausages. I just, it
2: never, never works for me. And tomato or barbecue sauce? Oh, always tomato sauce. All right. So there you go. If you are manning the poll booth where Quentin casts his vote, you now know what type of sausage he is looking forward to on Saturday. Now, uh, before we get on to talking about the topic for this week's podcast, I reminded to you, we really would like you to join our Facebook podcast group. It's Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. It's a great place to uh chat to us about the topics that we cover here, to let us know what you want to hear about on the pod, uh, to talk to some of the presenters as well. We're always keen to hear your thoughts there. And if you jump on the Facebook podcast group and you make a suggestion for a podcast, which we later turn into a podcast, a policy forum pod, then you could be the winners of one of our exclusive, very short run, only got like two of them left, so we might have to have some more made up. Policy Forum Pod mug, as demonstrated by Bob Cotton on the Facebook podcast group this week. It's a nice photo of him enjoying a nice cup. Have you got one of these mugs?
0: I have. Thanks to you, Martin. And I'm really appreciating that mug.
2: Is it doing a really fine job with your cup of tea? It
0: most certainly is. It's, It's a wonderful mug.
2: So there you go. You know how to get your hands on one of those. Leave your suggestions for us. We're really looking forward to hearing them. Now today on the podcast, we want to have a closer look at energy policy in the context of Australia's federal election campaign. Australia committed to the Paris Climate Agreement in 2016 and promised to significantly lower its emissions by 2030. Now this is a really important community issue. We know this. Various polls have told us how important it is. Plus we've seen things like the climate strike. We've seen young children and school children take to the streets in their thousands uh, protesting at the Lack of action from political leaders. We've seen the rise of the Extinction Rebellion movement. We've seen Greta Thunberg at Davos berating world leaders uh, about their lack of activity in tackling climate change. In the Australian election, in order to address these concerns, an energy policy that includes the transition towards renewable sources of energy and away from fossil fuels could play a crucial role. And Australia's parties have made their own energy policy pledges. The coalition is focusing on lowering energy prices through one-off payments and by introducing a default market price for electricity, whilst Labour is also keen to lower energy prices but wants to reduce emissions and increase renewable energy use to 50%. So today we want to ask... Have energy transition policies been sufficiently addressed in the election campaign? And we've got a really good lineup of guests to have a chat about these issues, haven't we, Quentin? We sure
0: have. We've got the Energy Dream Team. So we've got Professor Ken Baldwin. He's director of the ANU Energy Change Institute. And from 2011 to 2013, he was a member of the Project Steering Committee for the Australian Energy Technology Assessment. The second person on our team is Professor Carly Catchpole. She's a professor at the ANU College of Engineering and Computer Science. She is a real whiz when it comes to plasmonic solar cells and has been featured in news sections of Science Magazine and The Economist. And her work on nanophotonic light trapping. Easy was, for you to say, Quentin. Was listed in one of MIT's technology reviews, 10 Most Important Emerging Technologies. So Carly certainly knows technology and PV Photovoltaics. But the third uh, panelist is also uh, a part of the Dream Team, and that's uh, Mark Kenney. So, Mark is a senior Fano at the ANU Australian Studies Institute. He's got a very high profile of uh, the journalistic career, stretching over many years, but culminating in six years as the chief political correspondent and National Affairs Editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, and the Canberra Times. And Mark is also, because of course the election is on the 18th of May, the presenter for Democracy Sausage podcast.
2: It's a brilliant podcast where Mark gathers a panel of experts every every week to chew the fat over a week in politics and sizzle up a fresh serve of uh, delicious and healthy and nutritious analysis.
0: Look forward to listening to it.
2: Now, we'll get to the discussion in a sec. Before we do, a reminder, listeners, please do get in contact with us. We love hearing your thoughts, your comments, your questions, whatever it is you want to say to us. And the way to reach us is on Twitter, where we're Apps policy PolicyForum, uh, on email, where we're podcast at policyforum.net. Or like I said, join that Facebook podcast group with Policy Forum Pod on there. We'd be delighted to see you. Now, I'm going to hand over to Quentin for the panel interview, but I'll be back in part three where we'll go over some of your questions and comments. But for now, let's meet our panel.
0: Welcome everybody. So today we're talking about energy, we're talking about climate change and we're just a few days away from the Australian general election on May 18th. So lots to talk about and we've got three great experts to tell us what they need to tell us in terms of energy policy, climate change and everything else in between. So, may I please welcome everybody. So, first, over to you, Kylie. Can you say hello to us?
1: Hello, Quentin. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you. Good to have you here. Mark?
3: Yeah, it's great to be here, Quentin. We're, of course, all looking for that uh, federal election result, see how things play out. Yes,
0: that's right. Mate, don't, don't forget to place your bets mm-hmm. and can.
3: Well,
4: welcome, everybody, and uh, I hope you've uh, not voted already so you can uh, make a good decision based on this podcast. Absolutely.
0: Uh-huh. That that makes a lot of sense. So, so Talking about elections, lots and lots of polls happen at election time. So there's a poll that just came out from the Lowy Institute. And it says that 64% of Australians view climate change as a critical threat. That puts it at the top of a list of 12 threats to Australia's interest. Okay, A crucial part of reducing emissions, of course, is moving away from fossil fuel-based energy towards renewables. So how do we reconcile this poll with what's going on at the moment in terms of Australia? And perhaps we can all pass that question to anyone, but perhaps to you, Kylie. First of all, it's about, uh, do you think that energy policies have been sufficiently addressed in Australia's election campaign?
1: I think uh, energy Policy has, has been kind of on the back burner uh, since the discussion of the NEG. There's obviously a lot more that, that needs to be done where we're starting to move rapidly towards renewables. The cost of renewables is, is decreasing all the time. Uh, it's now cheaper to install renewables than coal. So what we're seeing is a, an inevitable transition uh, of the economy and we have to recognise that and we have to put in the policies in place to support that.
0: So you're talking about government getting getting involved and we haven't heard a lot from either the coalition or Labor. Is that, that your view?
1: Uh, yes. What we need above all is stable policy settings to uh, enable the emissions uh, from energy to decrease over time. So we think that there will be a transition to renewables. Um, that's clear and that's um, broadly supported. Uh, by Australians, but we need the government to make sure that the policy settings are in place so that that transition will be smooth and will um, allow it to happen with maximum benefit. Thanks,
0: Carly. So Carly mentioned the
1: NAG. What, what does the
0: NAG stand for, Kent?
4: Well, the NEG is, uh, is dead, isn't it? Uh, it's the National Energy Guarantee that was proposed by uh, the uh, Turnbull government as uh, as the fourth best policy uh, in this space. Remember, we had the carbon tax, and that was removed by the Abbott government. Uh, we then, for a very brief instant, had the Emissions Intensity Scheme. that was removed, uh, again, by the Coalition Party Room. Then we had the Clean Energy Target, which didn't last very long either. That was immediately uh, uh, ruled out by the Coalition Party Room. And then we had the NEG, which brought about the downfall of the Turnbull administration. So uh, we now no longer have a a policy in place that aligns climate and energy. Uh, We have the Renewable Energy Target that runs out next year, but that's already driven a lot of the change that's happening that Kylie's already mentioned. Uh, So effectively, we've got a policy vacuum at the moment, and I think this is a clear distinguishing factor between the major parties Uh, The coalition does not have a policy that aligns climate with energy policy, uh, whereas the uh, Labor Party and the Greens uh, certainly do have policies, they have targets, uh, they have mechanisms to reach those targets, and uh, they're talking about uh, revisiting the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, if they uh, were to take office. And that would mean discussions with the coalition, and uh, by that time, maybe the coalition be ready to discuss it again uh, in opposition, Uh, but let's see what happens uh, with the election. The NEG is not completely dead yet.
0: Thank you. The NAG is not completely dead. That's a nice little slogan we can go with. Okay, <laughs> Mark. So it sounds so complicated. There's this NAG thing. there's a NAM, and then there's this, and mm. there's that. So it seems a bit complicated for all of us, including myself, about what all this means in terms of energy policy. But can you can you put it in in your perspective in terms of the the politics of this, and in terms of what this means, and in, con, in the context of that, that that question about energy policies. So, yeah, Quentin. Yeah. I mean,
3: it's, it's such a fascinating area because it's just been a, uh, as Ken said, it's just been a kind of a, a, a succession of policy failures or political failures, uh, f- you know, for a long time now. And in fact, you could even add one on the front of that list, uh, which was the CPRS, which of course you know, was the emissions trading scheme that uh, Kevin Rudd was pushing in which eventually they could not get through the parliament. The Greens would not support it. So, Indeed. you know, and and that itself was uh, really the manifestation of some previous work and elaboration on some previous work done in the dying days of the Howard government in favour of a uh, an emissions trading scheme. So there have just been so many false starts here and the politics have been incendiary all the way through Um And within the coalition, as Malcolm Turnbull said, lamented really uh, after after he was removed last year, uh, he admitted that this is a policy space that the coalition just feels like it's it's kind of uh, incapable of ever coming to any proper resolution on. Uh, Now, maybe the Australian voters are going to, just like they are with renewable energy and lots of their other preferences, maybe they're going to take this into their own hands and uh, just get rid of a government that can't. That can't sort it out and uh, go to a go to the other side where there's more hope of getting getting something done. As 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 we've just noted, there's um there's more policy on the on the left of uh, politics than there is on the right on of this for for now so um we'll we'll see what the australian voters do but it has been just a a an extraordinary sort of capitulation to base politics all the time and i think people look at it from outside australia and they go what what's going on there why is why is the environment so politically charged why is doing anything in this space so difficult uh, and why has it uh, resulted in the in the uh, loss really i suppose you could say of probably five or six political leaders going right back to Malcolm Turnbull in 2009 as opposition leader. I think that's right,
4: Mark. And, uh, you know, I think it's a really interesting point you make about the CPRS because uh, really that was the start of, uh, of all the discussions around aligning climate and energy policy. Mm. And uh, as you say, it was the Greens that really put the kibosh on that and uh, and caused the rift in the coalition that meant uh, that we've had a decade, essentially, of, of unresolved climate and energy alignment. And so, they never,
3: the Greens never admit to this. Now, even no, now, if agreed. you put it to them, they say the CPRS would have locked in failure. Well, what, what have we had for... A uh, for ten years since then, we have had really horrendous failure, and very
4: interesting to see that in the lead up to the election, that Labor uh, refused to actually participate in discussions with the Greens about aligning their policies. And I think that's got something to do with this legacy going back to the CPRS. When it does, the,
0: when the and, Greens a, and,
3: and the and the carbon tax. You know, that Julia Gila- we're talking Gila- about Julia Gila- Gillard Gila- 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 yeah, election. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. when true, she when she signed that pact with the Greens and had Bob Brown standing behind her and a few others. I, I, you know, there's a general view in, 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 in politics that this may have made sense in a policy way. There was a, there was a pragmatism about it, but the optics of it were quite, quite dangerous for the Labour Party. And I think that's what Labour is saying now to Richard Di Natale and, and the Greens generally is there will be no coalition. There will, will be nothing that the other side can point to that says we are, but, you know, we are the sort captive. of um, the dog being wagged by the green tail.
0: Okay. So that's a good uh, little history lesson for us, but let's go forward. So. We've got the Renewable Energy Target. It's an, a, another acronym out there, the RET. But don't we have uh, bipartisan support in the RET or, or, or don't we? And where does that take us beyond 2020? Anyone on that one? Uh,
4: yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, the RET, the RET is uh, in place. It'll uh, finish in 2020, although large-scale, uh, you know, certificates will still be issued uh, up until 2030. So, you know, that policy in some sense will continue, but the target stops in 2020. And the really interesting thing about this is that we are going to meet that target early. Uh, The uh, investment in renewables in Australia is uh, so rapid. uh, It's the fastest in the world per capita at the moment at around 250 watts per person per year. Uh, and this is just going gangbusters at both utility scale and on people's roofs. Uh, so what we're seeing is, uh, a, a very rapid deployment of renewables that will meet the original, uh, oh, sorry, it'll meet the revised renewable energy target under the Abbott government. It'll probably meet the, uh, original, uh, renewable energy target that was, was set before that. Uh, and, uh, and then who knows what'll happen. As Kylie said, you know, this can easily fall over without a consistent government policy to continue to drive this uh, industrial revolution you could call it because it is being driven by industry it's in a policy vacuum at the moment so government is not driving this
0: anymore well, let's, it, let's it's let's being grab driven that by economics and that's a good one so Kylie started off talking you talked about the technology and it's happening anywhere at lower cost now with with uh, uh, photovoltaics on roofs and of course uh, at a large scale so isn't that technological transformation happening anyway? Do, do we need the red anymore? I mean, that's the. So, is the technology in place already? The costs are already down that, that we can just move forward anyway, even despite what governments do?
1: I would say that the costs are down, but there's still a large role for government, particularly in the coordination and the transmission side now. So, what we've seen over the last few years is that the industry is capable of installing at a high rate, a rate that if it continues, it will make a significant impact on our Paris targets. So this is making the largest impact of anything in the economy, this installation of solar and wind. So we can do that, uh, but we're getting to the point where transmission is starting to be an issue and there's a lack of coordination between projects and agencies so that their projects are being installed in not very ideal locations. And that means they're not generating as much electricity as they could if there was better coordination. So we do need to look at the whole of system approach to the transmission to make sure that we're getting the, the most out of uh, what we install and to make sure that we continue to install at a high rate.
0: Can you, can someone help me here in terms of this, this national uh, energy market or electricity market that we have, in, at least in southeastern Australia, How does it work? So when we talk about renewables coming in and baseload and dispatchable, all this kind of mumbo-jumbo, how does it all work for us? So what does this mean in terms of coordination and investment? Does anyone want to – Okay, over to you, Ken.
4: So, uh, Kylie's made the point that um, you know that we're reaching the point where there's so much renewables entering the system that we have to change the system as a whole.
0: But isn't that a good thing? Is that, it,
4: it that absolutely is a good thing? But it's
0: got to add something else but, on but top. But we've
4: got to do even more. So, when you're at the level that we are at the moment, which is about 20% renewables in the electricity system, the the system as we have it can cope with that. But once you get towards 50% and beyond, then you need a new system. You need one that has, as Kylie says, sufficient transmission to get the electricity from A to B. You need storage in order to deal with the intermittency of the renewables at that high level. And uh, as with all uh, investment processes, you need consistent government policy. Otherwise, there's high risk. And where there's high risk, there's high cost of finance. And this drives down the investment that's needed in transmission, storage, and even more renewables beyond 50%. So we're reaching, we're in a sweet spot at the moment where industry's going gangbusters with a zero policy environment but they will soon hit a, a wall at around 50% where they need a lot of government intervention in order to put the right settings into place for investment in transmission infrastructure and storage. And
3: I think it's really... If I could just add something there. It's really interesting. You describe it as a zero-policy environment, which is, I think, a fair description of it, but it's, it's zero-policy, ultra-high-level politics all the time. You know, the politics around this issue have been absolutely, as I said before, incendiary and quite destructive. So I think what... We are looking for as a nation is um, not just for some new policy settings which are you know conducive to to this transformation but some level of political consensus which suggests that this is not. In you know heavily contested terrain, and is not going to be changing. That's what industry needs to make the big sorts of investments uh, and changes to the way they operate, and that has been uh, sadly uh, you know missing for a long time now. Thanks to the fact that there's been a lot of advantage taking, you know, really cynical advantage taking in our politics.
0: So, what about power prices? Um, so, 2018, there was a lot of talk about power prices and a big stick policy. I think from the from the coalition, which I don't think was uh, was implemented, but. How do we get power prices down or, or at least they don't go up very, very much?
1: Yes. And if you if you install the right sort of mix and if you install it in a um, co- coordinated way, then certainly it shouldn't cost more. If you look at um, how you install uh, solar and wind, you want a mix of solar and wind, you want a range of different geographical locations. And if you do that, you don't need to add too much storage into the mix um, you can add some storage or a number of different um, possible options. Uh, using pumped hydro can be qu- quite cheap, although you do have to install uh, quite a lot at a time. Uh, batteries are, are rapidly decreasing in price uh, all the time and you can install those a bit of a, of a time. So it's been shown that if you calculate a full uh, system, you don't need to add to the cost of the system to move to a, a 100% renewable electricity system but you do need to think about uh, how you install it and where you install and it and
3: also how it's uh, how it's coordinated I guess or Absolutely. how it's connected yep. because if we go back to that um, that famous you know blackout in south australia perhaps arguably that was the blackout we had to have if i can uh, borrow a, a sort of a, a line about recessions <laughs> what about part. the drover's dog can we put that uh, in we as we well? can <laughs> probably put that in there as long as it's an electric dog but um <laughs> I say the blackout we had to have in a sense because it actually did teach us in a very sort of graphic way about the instability of the system. There was a whole lot of political misrepresentation about it, I think. But nonetheless, it did very much draw attention to, I think, to the ordinary person. It sort of taught the ordinary person that, yes, you can go to these renewables, but there is an intermit- intermittency cost to it or, or aspect to it, and there, and therefore, you need system redesign as well, which is the point uh, Ken was making. Um So I think, you know, it's all about uh, understanding where we need to go and how we need to get there.
0: Yeah, so it's about targets, it's about policy, it's about technology, it's about a combination of all these things, Um, so... Getting it, getting that way, but it's not about an invisible hand's going to fix this for us. We're going to need to have some guidance. That's what that's what I'm hearing from all of you.
4: Absolutely, yeah. and uh, and you know, I think Mark's point about uh, you know the the fact that uh, the politics needs to be sorted so that we don't run the risk of another government reversing absolutely everything and undoing everything in about three years' time. That needs to be fixed first. That's the absolute minimum needed in order to give industry the certainty that they need going forward. Then what they need is a plan, as Kylie says. You've got to plan the transmission system. You've got to plan the storage systems, you got to plan the way that you build the renewable energy generation. And let's face it, uh, only uh, a quarter to a third of the cost of electricity comes from the generating source itself. Then you've got the transmission costs. So unless you plan them, the costs are going to go up. And you've got the, the retail end of things, selling electricity to the, uh, the customer. And uh, so the combination of all those three price factors is, uh, is something that needs to be looked at holistically. You can't just address, you know, uh, cheap generation without putting in all the other uh, planning processes
3: Although as well. Although there is some increased role for distributed uh, generation, absolutely. Is not? So that, that does sort of sort out some of your, your, your distribution. There cost. will be.
4: And the higher the price of uh, of electricity from the grid, the more that there will be uh, the take up of uh, producer consumers, prosumers uh, in households and businesses. And we see this Increasingly in businesses, so you've got companies like Sun Metals uh, in Townsville uh, putting on 150 megawatts of solar to just mm-hmm. simply pay for their own electricity bills. You've got, uh, you know, uh, Sanjeev Gupta talking about a one gigawatt system. This is the, for this Wyala, is the Indian UK Australia. billionaire, indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So this is uh, for the Wyala Steelworks. Uh, so this is an increasing uh, phenomena that we're seeing in industry, and of course uh, the Australian uh, population. Has is the highest penetration of rooftop solar in the world. 20% of households have solar on their roofs. So, so this is a, a really important factor, but it's only one part of the picture. So you've got to look at the whole system.
0: So let's, let's put in climate change into this big mix that we've got here in terms of energy. So the presumption is more renewables, less carbon emissions, we're better off in terms of meeting our targets. And I'll get to those targets shortly and how they differ across the different parties. Uh, is that is that presumption... Sufficient? Is it like we fix it in the in the electricity market, and we're going to meet our targets, or or do we need to do more than that? So
4: well, electricity is the easiest uh, sector to, to do something about, and uh, and that's where all the low hanging fruit is, and that's why the focus has been on electricity. Uh, But electricity is only 35% of Australia's emissions. The rest comes in industrial processes, in transport, uh, in fugitive emissions, in agriculture, and those areas. And of those, you could uh, easily deal with probably three quarters of Australia's total emissions by electrifying a lot of the other sectors. You electrify space heating, you electrify transport, and then the burden falls back again on the electricity sector to make sure that's 100% renewable. So that will take a long time. Uh, dealing with the electricity sector itself first is the right thing to do, uh, but by and large, the big game in the future is to electrify the rest of the economy and and the
0: like other the sectors. Transport fleet, for example. Okay, so Indeed. so Labor's talked about electric. Vehicles and it has various uh, various target in play. I, I believe uh, for electric vehicles. How does that work? So you know millions of vehicles plugged into the into the natural the uh, national uh, electricity market. How does that work? Can is that all possible? But again, is that a planning issue or is it a is is it technically logically possible, Kylie? For this, would that work or?
1: Uh, yeah, there are a lot of opportunities if you're doing that to uh, control how you're how you're charging and and discharging, and that uh, if you do it uh, smart, then you can a- add a lot more control to the um, to the grid and to the system by including uh, electric vehicles in the system. You would need to think about the the cost of doing so, and you'd need to put in the right incentives so that it's actually worthwhile for vehicle owners, for example, to to be using their batteries in that way. Um, it would overall it require expansion of the system. So this is what we're seeing already at the moment. The grid uh, is designed for a limited number of um, services and it's designed for centralised generation. So what we need to move towards is um, providing a lot more Services and a lot more uh, back and forth. So not only going from central generations out to distribution, but mm. uh, moving in lo- all sorts of directions along the grid.
0: Yeah, so it's about getting all the pieces together. So I suppose if you have a ele- lot, a lot of electric vehicles, and you have a lot of coal uh, uh, fired uh, electricity plants, it probably does make a lot of,
3: a lot, of <laughs> a lot of help in terms of carbon well, emissions. Th- no, and that goes but to di- Ken's point yeah, about you yeah. know d- getting the electricity sector the right. underway, the, ch- the change in that underway first. But you know, like the, the just going to the sort of politics of this, you know. The, the government made this huge song and dance at the start of this election campaign about Labor's o- uh, objective of getting 50% of new car vehicles being electric vehicles by 2030. I'd be surprised if it's as low as 50% by 2030, frankly. I think that uh, Australians take up of technology is, is is usually very fast, faster than the rest of the world. Um, but even even uh, allowing for that not being the case, I just think there is a process going on now. These cars are becoming very attractive. The The... the, the the barrier at the moment, there are probably two, are the unit price and and the infrastructure, as Kylie was saying. You know, if you have an electric vehicle at the moment, then you do have concerns about range. You do have concerns about where you're going to charge it and so forth. But all of these things can happen, just like... Uh, when we shifted from horse and buggies to to petrol-driven cars, I mean the infrastructure had to be built. S- service stations needed to be in places where people could use them and fill up their cars. And it happened. It is not beyond the wit of this nation to do that. Nor is it indeed beyond the the profit motive of uh, of individual investors to want to get in on this. I mean there are you know there are going to be ways that this happens. And I think this will be exponential. That over a period of time, we will see uh just that that rate of take up of of electric vehicles a number of them now are, are very good and there are hybrids that's you know it's, it's, a lot of people forget this and if you watch the F1 last night the formula 1 races these cars all have you know kinetic energy reduction uh, systems in them and so forth uh, uh, recovery systems in them using hybrid technology now providing a vast amount of horsepower in these Ultra high performance vehicles. All of this stuff's happening. And if a bunch of troglodytes want to say it's not, then, you know, I think Australian voters are uh, are having, will have their say about that. And, well, we
4: do, and we're doing things in the right order. Yeah. I mean, you know, it'll it'll be the case that if, uh, let's say, 50% of vehicles are electric by 2030, that the electricity system will be the vast majority of it from renewables by then because the current installation rate shows we're on track for approximately 50% of our electricity to come from renewables by the mid-2020s. So that's the right order to do things in. Then there's going to be an interesting question as to whether actually electric uh, batteries are the way to go or whether to have hydrogen fuel cells in vehicles and just have the same uh, electric vehicle infrastructure around that. So you either run off a battery or you run off a hydrogen fuel cell. And that's an interesting interplay because the jury, I think, is still out on which direction the car industry will go. In fact, a number of uh, car companies are hedging their bets. Uh, they'll just put in a battery or they'll put in a hydrogen fuel cell, depending on uh, which technology turns out to be the, the cheapest and most effective. And again, coming back to distribution, whether we can get a hydrogen distribution network in place in our, in our service stations, uh, or whether we have uh, plug-in, uh, 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 battery systems that, um, you know, you go off and you have a cup of coffee for half an hour and you come back and your car's charged.
0: Okay, but but this depends on policy gets, as you were saying earlier, Ken and, and all of you, so let's get back to this policy issue so mark you you raised this issue about the election and voters, and so let's focus in on that that critical date on May eighteenth mm-hmm. so people going into the voting booth. They've got all their numbers. They've got a list, (laughs) which I find complicated enough.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're an economist. What would you know? (laughs) But
0: but how does this figure? Uh, So we've got the energy that we talked about here. But what about the climate change? I mean the the lobby poll says – Australians consider that as the number one threat in the context of the threats that they were identified, so how does this figure? i mean we've got all this other stuff to think about we've got the it's the mm. economy stupid we 've mm. got climate change energy it's all mm. kind of complicated. How will that figure because last year it seemed to me there was a lot of talk about power prices and doing something, but there seems to be much less talk at least in this election campaign about that so over to you first, Mark, but I, I want everyone to join in on that. The, the vote vis-a-vis <laughs> the talk. You know, so. yeah,
3: it, look, it is a really diffi- difficult one to unpick because uh, Australians uh, are, are very concerned about climate change. In fact, I've seen a poll that says that 90% of Australians want to see faster action on climate change. It was a credible poll. And I don't think it's all that hard to believe that they want to see faster action on it. It depends how that comes about. And if you start then... I guess, qualifying that with, uh, like, are you prepared to pay more for your energy as a result of it? Some people will fall away. Some people will say, yes, I am, and you know, because they're very, very concerned about it. Uh, in a way, I think what's interesting about that Lowy poll that says 64% of people think it's the greatest threat, I sort of think that number's low, actually. Um, what's a bigger threat, uh, you know, really? Uh, it's, um, I mean, obviously, you can pick out defense threats, you know, what? if, if if China goes to war with Taiwan, for example, uh, that could be uh, that could be a, a very difficult moment. And what would the US do? What would we do? I mean, you know, th- that's something to contemplate. And we know there are tensions in the South China Sea and all kinds of things like that. Uh, there's terrorism, you know, yes, but uh, the climate change issue is not going away. Everyone accepts that except for, you know, a small rump of deniers who've been controlling policy in the Liberal Party. Uh, and um, so, I think there is a, you know, strong concern about it. It, it does then, though, have to sort of jostle with, uh, with some of the other front of mind issues in election campaigns. And, and some of those are really kind of facile and basic, like, do I like the leader? Do I like Bill Shorten or do I like Scott Morrison or someone else? And, uh, and some of them are, are a bit deeper. They're about, you know, concerns about you know, the tax mix and, and these sorts of things, perfectly legitimate concerns that people have. And I guess that's what we'll find out. Um, you know, at the end of the day, will a, a party that's proposing steeper emissions cuts among its suite of policies, will it be, uh, successful? And if so, I guess, um, uh, you know, it'll be, um, There'll be some policy certainty and we'll then just see what the conservative side of politics does in opposition as a response.
0: Yeah, we'll see, I suppose, on May 18th. But but can we go to those targets on, on, on the carbon emissions reductions? Because I think that's probably worthwhile looking at. So, Ken? First on the the, the target from from Labor and then I'll go to you, Kylie, in terms of the target from the coalition and then we can see, uh, can they be reconciled? It doesn't look like it, but...
4: (laughs) Well, you know, I think both uh, major parties have their own climate policies and I keep coming back to the point, however, that the easiest way to deal with climate issues is to deal with the energy side of things and the electricity side of things in particular only one of the two major parties has a policy on the energy side of things, and that's labour. They have a target for 50% renewables by uh, 2030. They have a 45% overall reductions, but it's based on an energy policy. They have policies around electric vehicles, whereas the coalition has ended the neg and they've not put anything else in its place. The Renewable Energy Target, as we know, finishes next year. And there is nothing in the coalition policies on the energy alignment with climate policy. If I were a voter, I would vote for the party with a policy.
0: So where does the coalition stand on this in the context of climate change and connecting it to energy? Uh, You've talked about the renewables and take up of renewables, but is there anything that that that's going to work in the 2020s for? Us? Uh, suppose that it is a coalition victory on May 18th. Where, do, where, does, where, do, where, where does that take us in the context of energy and climate change together?
1: One of the things I think we need to think about in the long term is the different types of threats to Australia of not only climate change, but international reactions to climate change. So Australia is getting fairly far behind in terms of its action A lot of other countries are taking a lot more action. And if you look at the uh, renewables being installed globally, there's now more than half of new electricity capacity is renewables. So what we're seeing is more and more renewables being installed. That'll mean less and less coal being installed. And that's actually a direct threat to Australian exports. So we need to see what the threats are to Australia, not only the climate change threats in terms of uh, drought, for example, but also the economic threats. So what we need to move towards in the long term, um, whether whether you think action on climate change in terms of the effects of climate change is important or not, just in terms of our international position, we're actually going to need to move forward on diversifying the Australian economy,
0: so so let's take the scenario the coalition wins on May eighteenth. Okay, so we've got Ken's view that Labor has a, a policy that connects energy to, to to climate change, but and the coalition doesn't have that. Connectivity in the context of what it's two sets of policies. If it has a policy and energy, so what? What would you advise each of you to? So Scott Morrison's uh, prime minister, uh, <laughs> as of May eighteenth, he gets 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 elected. Uh, what what advice would you be giving uh, the coalition?
3: Revive Suggest- the neck, I guess. Okay. I mean that would that would be really the easiest step for them Natural to take after guarantee. all this was a policy that went to the party room twice and was accepted the cabinet, by the liberal caucus accepted. yes Malcolm Turnbull should not have backed out of this yes uh, and and as I uh, often say to people in these discussions you know he didn't because he was worried about a backlash from this small rump of kind of reactionaries in in the, in the liberal party led by Tony Abbott and a few others but I mean surely Turnbull must come to the view at some point that he should have done that because after all what's the worst that could have happened he could have lost his job, and he did uh he did, and he didn't you know he he lost it on his knees rather than on his feet on this question and i think uh it must be the the most rational policy it was it was of course as as you described it ken before i think fourth or fifth best option, but it was the best option within the um within the confines of all the policy and and politics parameters within the coalition it was the best they could do and i think it remains probably in that space so if they survive they probably obviously have to reach you know change the name somehow and and all of that but essentially that is i think the way forward and labor has already indicated that it's prepared to revive the NEG and would be considering doing so if it could get support from the Liberal Party. That is Labor in government. So I would imagine that Labor in opposition would probably come to that same view. At some point, we need the two parties to actually arrive at a consensus position, even if it's not on the best possible policy on something that can give the country a way of moving forward, of resolving some of these questions, and of unlocking a lot of investment that at the moment is flowing to other countries which have actually just sort of looked at the, at the undeniable science and said, we need to make some changes.
0: Yes, there's policy certainty issues. So Kylie, what about the technology side? So there's the the, the implications that come from the, the, uh, the NAG as well, but, but what about the technology advice that you'd be giving to, well, let's say it's Scott Morrison on May 18th, or, or maybe it's Bill Shorten who's about... To become the prime minister,
1: uh, I think they need to to move forward with pumped hydro and, and battery storage. Those are our um, obvious key contenders for storage. As Ken mentioned, we're going to be needing storage within uh, a decade or so on a large scale. So we've just started uh, installing batteries um, in South Australia very successfully. They're already these are the
0: Tesla batteries. That,
1: that's right, and yep. they've already showed that they can respond uh, very quickly. Uh, and because of that, they can help uh, reduce price spikes in the market, mm. for example. So those kinds of things can have uh, advantages as they 're installed, which are separate from their, from their storage, but just from their, their quick response. Uh, um, pump hydro is also um, reasonably reasonably quick, and so that we need to look at that for, for larger scales. But uh, we do need to move forward on that because it will take um, some time to to install uh, everything that we need to install.
0: And what about r and d, you know research and development? Is there r and d required, or are these technologies already ready ready to go? In the, uh, the
1: space? Yes, yes, absolutely, and especially uh, on topics related to to uh, improving the integration of of all these technologies within the the grid, getting the required uh, control. Uh, in terms of looking to the longer term, I was mentioning diversifying the Australian economy, we have a huge opportunity. They're actually with uh, renewably generated hydrogen. Uh, Japan would like to buy um, renewable hydrogen from from Australia in, in coming decades. Uh, so we can look about uh, how we could do that. At the moment, it's it's too expensive. Uh, it's several times more expensive than fossil fuel generated hydrogen, for example. But there are countries like uh, Japan and South Korea which can't generate their own hydrogen. Um, energy. They just don't have enough resources of any type, fossil fuel based or renewable type. So they're always going to need to import energy. So it's a, a long-term opportunity for us to move away from coal and to move into something uh, like hydrogen. But we will need the research and development in order to do this. And we certainly can do it because if you look at what happened with uh, solar electricity, um, 15 or so years ago, it was five times as much the, as, as the price of conventional electricity and now it's cheaper. So uh, if you put in the right research and development, the right industry development, you can dramatically reduce these costs and I think we can do this with hydrogen but as well.
3: Yeah, they're very good points and you, you know, you just need a bit of vision and a bit of longer term thinking and uh, the trouble with the political cycle is that it mitigates against you know, it, people in, in politics uh, just can't bring themselves to think long term. They're only thinking in electoral cycles and uh, because business needs to think longer term, especially when talking about significant investments. I mean, you look at the debate about Adani, for example. You know, the whole... one, one the of The coal, ju- mine, the yeah, coal yeah. mine. One of the justifications for it that, that was used very early on and, and you know, it was a very well-targeted sort of argument against people who you might put on the broad left of the spectrum. And the argument was that there's 100 million people in India who are living without electricity at all, that are cooking their, their food by boiling up cow shit or whatever it was, you know, uh, and that this was uh, some... Um, you know kind of equity question now that's fine except that the, the, this money wasn't going to go to or this coal wasn't going to go to building the distribution infrastructure to all of those uh, people in those remote parts of india uh, the answer for those people is in fact these new technologies uh, this um, prosumers as you as you call them can you know the the uh, distributed uh, new technology energy in those villages, in those places. That's the answer for bringing electricity to those communities, not poles and wires, uh, the effectively the technology of the 20th century.
0: Mm. Well, last word to you, Ken. So uh, looking forward, what are, what are, what, is the glass half full, glass half empty? And uh, where do you think we're going to be uh, three years' time?
4: Uh, I, I'm an optimist, so I think the glass is much more than half full. Um, You know, what we're seeing is a technological revolution that is being driven by pure economics at the moment in the absence of government policy. Uh, Australia is in a great position. We have, uh, you know, this wonderful renewable energy resource which we're now capitalising on. We're starting from a very high level of fossil fuels in the electricity sector. Uh, We have uh, an island continent with a very long and skinny uh, national electricity grid. If we can transform our electricity system uh, and do so efficiently and successfully, any country can do it. And so we are the, the the focus of the world at the moment. If we can make the energy transformation that is inevitably going to happen around the world work, then everyone else is going to look at Australia and say, they can do it, we can do it. So I think it's a really important role for us. Uh, the government needs to get on board w- of whichever flavour. Uh, if I were to give advice to Scott Morrison on May the 18th, as you suggested uh, a few minutes ago... Uh, I would say to him, uh, look at the big picture. Look what the electorate are telling you. Look at what industry are telling you. You need to have an electricity policy on board that allows us to address our climate uh, needs and uh, stare down the right-wing rump of the Labor part, uh, the Liberal Party. They might not be uh, re-elected, some of them. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a chance that some of them won't be there. Stare the remainder of them down and then go to the opposition and say, how about we start talking about this on a bipartisan way? We could start with a an nig and then ramp things up. Yes. That's what I would. That's what i advise Scott Morrison to do.
0: Okay, so we need smart politicians, we need smart policy, and we need a smart grid.
4: Indeed, and, and, and <laughs> indeed, if it, if it turns out to be Bill Shorten uh, next week, uh, who's uh, prime minister, uh, then he's already got a plan. And you know, it's very unusual for an academic to say this, to recommend one party over another. Most of the time, we're very even-handed, which we should be, and absolutely above board. Uh, but this time, the choice is between a party with no policy and a party with a policy. I'd go with a policy
0: every time. Well, this is about public policy. <laughs> and that's what this pod's about. So uh, thank you so much, Kylie. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you so much for sharing your time, your thoughts, your, your experiences and intelligence with us. It's, it was a great uh, uh, opportunity for us to hear from you. So thank Thanks, you. Chris. Thanks, Chris.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Stay with us. Don't go away. We're looking forward to talking about the comments of past pods and suggestions for future pods. So stay tuned.
3: Can you hear it? That's the sizzle of an Australian election heating up. And as both major parties cook up a recipe to win the vote, make sure you're across all the best analysis and insight with Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. Each week I'll be chatting with experts about the election week that was and what might be on the menu next. We'll chew the fat over the biggest announcements and developments and dive deeper than the headlines. So join me, Mark Kenny, each Monday for Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or at policyforum.net forward slash podcasts.
2: Welcome back and thanks once again to our guests today, Kylie Cashball, Ken Baldwin, and of course Mark Kenny. And I've still got Quentin here with me. Quentin, what did you make of that discussion?
0: Oh, look, I thought it was a great discussion. It's a lot of detail in it, a lot of acronyms, I think, as well. But uh, can Kylie and Mark explain that to us? And they put it in the context of policy. You know, what are the policies from the coalition, the labor, and uh, the issues going forward? So not just about this election, but where are we going to be in the 2020s? And what's Australia's future in terms of energy transition? So I thought it was great. Great to get those uh, technology details, the policy details, and, uh, you know, where we might be going. And so, yeah,
2: super duper. I, like I suspect a lot of listeners, find the whole issue of climate change quite depressing at times. The global inactivity or the very slow activity to address it. But there was a fair amount of positivity in that discussion there, wasn't there? In terms of Ken was talking about the take-up of uh, renewable energies and Kylie talking about the dramatic increases of, of the of the technology there. Did you feel
0: fairly positive coming Well oh, Look, of I think it was a po- very positive perspective, but th- there was a caveat attached to, to those discussions, and that namely was that government policy is very important because we're talking about very... Long-term investments in distribution, transmission, and of course generation, and that's not just the market forces at work here. Governments have to make the the, the right regulations and rules, and and indeed uh, set the the policy settings. So I think that was a critical point. Yes, it's a it's a bright future for us in Australia, but at the same time we got to get our policies right. And bipartisan support, I think, was a was a key point that they raised as well. So so yes, things are looking good as we can get our policies right. And uh, we can get some agreement on them. And so let's hope that's what happens in the next three years.
2: That's a pretty big if though, isn't it?
0: Certainly looking back, it hasn't been good. But, uh, you know, that's what elections are for. Hopefully there's some resolution about the policy and resolution about who's in charge and resolution about what we do next. So that's why people should vote in a democracy. And hopefully we'll get some outcomes, not just an energy, that uh, Australians want, uh, uh, whoever they vote for.
2: So there you go listeners you've heard what Quentin and I thought of the discussion but what did you think please do let us know we'd love to hear your thoughts you can contact us on twitter where we're apps policy forum you can email podcast At policyforum.net or best yet, jump onto the Facebook podcast group. We are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. We would love to see you there. And when you uh, join the group, you will have the opportunity to make suggestions for future issues that you would like to see covered on Policy Forum Pod or you could do it at any point really. But um, it will certainly ask you the question when you join the group. Um and I'd like to go over one of the suggestions that we have had over the last week um which I'll do in a second but firstly actually let me um welcome a couple of new members to the Facebook podcast group so hello Guyan Prasad and Siti Nur Rosifa it's great to have you on board and don't forget, if you want to be in the running to win one of our exclusive mugs, and why wouldn't you? Just leave us a comment under the post showing our presenter, Bob Cotton, having a sip from our favourite mug in the podcast group. Uh, and that's what Avery Pool has done with a suggestion for a future Pod and Avery wrote: How about international students in Australia? Government policy and university approaches. It's topical given the recent news on admissions, but also more broadly, how could or should international engagement in higher education, including the building of overseas campuses, evolve going forward, especially in the Indo-Pacific? What do you think about that idea, Quentin?
0: Look, I think it's a really great thing to do. Uh, policy form of courses here at Crawford School, ANU. So we're at a university city there's a program from four corners ABC uh, this past week and it was on with the uh, controversial title cash cows referring to international students and uh, highlighted three universities and not the Anu let me add but uh, three universities and the, their admission policies but that's a it's a big issue it's a contested space about what funding is provided to universities, how universities can increase their revenues, of course, through international students, how diversity in the student profile is good, but to what extent uh, that diversity can uh, offset uh, other issues in the context of standards if admission policies aren't set properly. So those are big ticket issues. They're not just for universities and university students. There are a lot of university students from overseas, uh, hundreds of thousands of them in, in, in Australia, and it's connected to immigration policy. So it's a this is a big 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 ticket issue I think and and I believe it does require uh, a policy forum part uh, discussion at some point with the the necessary experts in the room.
2: So a thumbs up from you on, Absolute. on that Absolutely. Two then. thumbs
0: up, mate. Two left. thumbs yeah, up.
2: two thumbs up. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, if you want to be in the running to have two thumbs up for your podcast suggestion and in the running to win one of those policy forum pod, pod mugs, just jump onto the Facebook group and let us know what your thoughts. And many thanks for that suggestion, Avery. That certainly sounds like one that we might want to consider. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, if you have enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you have, and perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes alone. It'll only take you 30 seconds or so. All you need to do is find that fifth star. That's what we're looking for. And uh, in, if you can do that, it'll be a huge help to us in getting word out about the podcast and you will have our undying gratitude. That brings us to the end this week, but of course, we'll be back on Monday with another Democracy Sausage podcast with Mark Kenny, and then the regular Policy Forum pod will be back on Friday. So until then, from me, Martin Pearce, cheerio.
0: And over and out for me, Quentin Grafton.